right, well, take your Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 20. We're going to begin a series this morning through the Gospel of John. And as we do so, we're uh, actually going to start toward the end of the book because there is an all-important purpose statement that, that helps us really tie together many of the themes and, and some of the things that we see in the Gospel of John. So this morning we're going to be in John chapter 20 and beginning at verse number 30. John 20 and verse 30, and it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is one of four Gospels. I'm sure many of you know that, but one of the things about John's Gospel that, that we see is that it really stands out as quite unique when compared to the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels contain much of the same material. And as we read the Gospels, uh, we see that the style of Jesus speaking is, is very similar. He's often very terse, almost speaking like in, in Proverbs. Uh, the content of his teaching focuses in the synoptic or the other three Gospels on, on similar themes, things like the kingdom of God and discipleship. And he tells a lot of parables in, in the other Gospels. The, overflow, the overall flow of the uh, chronology, uh, the timeline of the other Gospels is, is much closer. And, and all of this overlap in, in the narratives and in the teaching has, has led many people to refer to the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as the synoptic Gospels. And that word simply comes from a word which means to be seen together, to be seen together. And so uh, those three Gospels uh, have so many similarities there. Uh, to be sure, we need to understand that each of the other three Gospels has its own distinct witness to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, even among the synoptics. The careful observer notes different styles and different emphases and distinct purposes. Yet the fact remains that when it comes to uh, the other three Gospels, they're remarkably similar. People have looked and done comparisons and and, and some have suggested that as much as 50% of the content of Mark, Mark is the, the shortest gospel, 50% of that is contained in the gospel of Luke. 90% of Mark's content is found in the gospel of Matthew. So much overlap, much, much similarity. But then consider the differences between those three gospels and the gospel of John, both in style and in substance, they are markedly different. We, we, we need to see that there's, there is still a lot of overlap. There are so many similarities, but, but the thing that stands out as we compare the other three Gospels to the Gospel of John is, is not so much the similarities, but the distinctions. Let me read this from, from one person who just really helps clarify some of the, the really important difference. Differences. He says, this is uh, from David Ninehouse, and he says, so just how different is John's gospel? Imagine for a moment that John was our only gospel. We would know far less of Jesus' biography. 
For John's gospel includes no story of his birth, no mention of his mother's name, that it, his mother's name was Mary. We have no account of his baptism in the Jordan River or his temptation in the Judean wilderness. No scene of glorious transfiguration before Peter, James, and John. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, he never eats with tax collectors and, and sinners. And there's not even a single exorcism that is described. Jesus clearly has 12 disciples, but, uh, but they're never enumerated or listed by name. And he goes on from there and, and describes uh, other differences, in, including the fact that in John's Gospel, we don't have any account of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, there's no account of the agonizing prayer in, in Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Jared pointed out I've been saying that wrong. So I got it right on the second try there. And he, he concludes by this. He, he concludes with this. It seems plain that, that John's Gospel is not in the canon not part of Scripture. The Spirit didn't inspire primarily to provide us with additional biographical details of Jesus' life. And the same could be said not only of his biography and and his life, but also of his teaching. In in the Gospel of John, there's, there's no kingdom of God mentioned. There aren't any parables. There's no call to deny oneself. No sermon on discipleship. Nothing about loving your neighbor. There's no teaching about prayer. No Lord's Prayer. And he concludes uh, with this. Again, Ninehouse says this, John's Gospel is not in the canon simply to provide us with additional details of Jesus' teaching on discipleship. So John wasn't written uh, to to just give us a thorough uh, and a complete uh, here's everything that Jesus did, all the facts about his life, the entire story. It, it wasn't to, to give us a full uh, spectrum of, of all of his teaching. And so we, we have a couple conclusions here. Uh, one is, is that we should see that John's gospel does have some unique details in it. There are things that are included in John's gospel that aren't in, in the other places, but it doesn't seem as if he's writing primarily to provide us with a detailed biography and, and we, secondly, second conclusion, we don't want to see that there is a lot of overlap. There's, there's not contradiction, so to speak, between these Gospels. And, and yet, what stands out really are the differences. So why did John write his Gospel? That's really the question that we want to ponder this morning. And there's no better place to go than our text. Many people view these verses that I just read as sort of a purpose statement of the Gospel of John. And I think that's, that's very accurate. These two verses certainly draw together some of the most central themes that we find in the Gospel of John. And so what I want to do this morning uh, is, is just simply kind of do an overview of the Gospel of John. And what I want us to see, first of all, is the method... And then secondly, the message, Uh, the method of John in writing and then the message of John, because there are some things that are really unique in the gospel of John. And I was going to say this later, but I'm just going to say it now. Most of the times when I enter into a new book or we're going through a new series, I don't typically do uh, an introductory message. But there are so many things that just really stand out that are unique in the gospel of John that I felt that this was really necessary. So let's begin by just discussing the method of John's gospel. And what we see this morning uh, is John's method is structured and John's method is symbolic. Two things. His, His method is structured and it's symbolic. So what we see here in verse number 30 
as we recognize that John was intentionally selective. Read number th- verse number 30, chapter 20, verse 30 again. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And in verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe. You hear John here, he's saying, Jesus, there's, there's a lot of other things that I haven't written down. There's a lot of other details that I have not conveyed in this gospel. But I have selected, I have chosen these things that I have written with a purpose so that you may believe. There's an an intentionality and a selectiveness uh, to his work. He did many other signs, but, but these specific things that he did I have written down. And we, we would think then that John didn't randomly pick these, okay? He wasn't just drawing them. Okay, there's walking on the water. I'm going to put them on the, a hat. And oh, I, I pulled out feeding the 5,000. I'm going to include that one. And let me pull out another miracle or another thing that Jesus did. No, no, there was an intentionality to his selectiveness. He, he chose the miracles and the signs, the, the teaching that Jesus did. He, he selected those things for a reason. And as we look to John's gospel, we we see uh, some selectiveness. We see some intentionality in what he chooses and the way that he draws out the details of miracles, the the way that he connects Jesus' teaching and his words to some of the things that are going on in Jewish Jewish culture in in that day and time. And so there's, there's clearly an intentionality on the part of John. And there's there's a clear structure in this book. I mentioned that most of the time I don't do an introductory message when we go into a new book because part of the reason is it isn't always clear as far as what kind of structure is in a book. But when we come to the Gospel of John, it is so abundantly clear that it it is quite evident that John structured his book in this way with intention and with purpose. So what is the structure of John? Well, there, there are four sections, okay? There's the introduction, which is chapter one. The prologue, as some people call it. And then there's the second section, which is the book of signs. And I would just encourage you, uh, the reason I'm doing this is because we're going to touch on these things again as we go through the Gospel of John. But, but I'd encourage you to try to write these things down or uh, remember them just because when we go through them, I, I want you to be able to have an awareness of this. So there's the introduction or prologue in chapter 1. The second section is the book of the signs, which is chapter, uh, the end of chapter 1 through chapter 12. And then there's the book of glory as it's titled by, by many scholars, which is chapter 13 through, through chapter 20. And then there's the conclusion or the epilogue, which is chapter 21. And so we'll just take each section here and, and explain a bit about that. First of all, there's the prologue, which is John, you know, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This is a, a completely unique way for the introduction of the gospel. We notice all the other gospels, they all start with either Jesus' birth narrative or his genealogy uh, or, or something else. In the, the gospel of Mark, it starts with his earthly ministry. Uh, and we have Jesus going right into temptation. It, it's all focused here. But John writes this unique gospel in which he starts reflecting just on the identity of the Son of God before he ever enters in to tell us a single detail about the life of of Jesus. And so the way that we view this is that John in this prologue, in this first section, he's kind of making these claims about the identity of Jesus 
which the rest of the book he's going to spend showing us how this is true. And so that's the purpose of the prologue. And then we have the book of signs, the book of the signs. Uh, And it's called that because this section, chapter 2 through chapter 12, is structured around seven miracles. The, The word sign, which is used over and over again in the Gospel of John. The the word sign is used 16 times, 16 times in this section from chapter 2 through chapter 12, 16 times. And it isn't used again in the book until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why this is called the book of the signs. They're miracles that Jesus did. But but it isn't just that, oh, Jesus did miracles. He did miraculous things. The, The idea of a sign is that this is something that points to a greater reality. That's what a sign is, right? You see a sign that says, welcome to Hallsville. That that means that there's this reality that there's a a line of demarcation that that says you're now in Hallsville here. It's pointing to a greater reality. That's what signs do. And that's what the miracles that John includes here. These are things that Jesus did that were miraculous. And that's great in and of itself that he had this miraculous power. But John includes these seven miracles, seven of them, seven signs in this section to to demonstrate particular things about the identity of Jesus. So those seven signs are Jesus turning water into wine. He heals the nobleman's son. He heals the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He feeds the multitude. He walks on water. He heals the blind man. And the last one in this book is the greatest one. It's like the crescendo of all of these signs is when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Each of these miracles were designed to tell us something specific about Jesus. They, they, they talk about Jesus' identity in a specific way. So here, here's what I mean. For instance, let me just give you one example. We have Jesus feeding the 5,000 or the great multitude because it's 5,000 men plus women and children. So more than 5,000 people, five, five loaves, two fish, right? I always, I always mix that up. Uh, but, but he feeds the multitude with that. Well, that's awesome. Miraculous thing, something only God could do, right? But the sign is more than that because Jesus goes on to teach from that that I'm... I'm the bread of life. And so we have this this discourse of Jesus all about how he is like the manna that came down from heaven. Or when Jesus heals or raises Lazarus from the dead. Greatest miracle that he does, right? Raising the dead. Amazing. Only God could do that. But Jesus says to to Mary and Martha, this points to something greater. This, This points to the fact he says, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, that miracle is teaching us something of the identity of Jesus Christ. So not only are there seven miracles in this section, the whole section is structured around these seven miracles, seven signs. There's also seven sermons or seven discourses. And so this is different from the other Gospels. You think about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes from, you know, talking about uh, the, the law and how he came to fulfill the law. And then he talks about prayer and then he talks about worry and then he talks about our words. And he, he just kind of scattershot. Boom, 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 boom. Almost like Proverbs, just just marching through those things. But But with the Gospel of John, John slows down and he just takes... 
He takes one point that Jesus makes or one, one discourse of Jesus, one sermon of Jesus, and he, and he takes much longer, sometimes a chapter or two, to, to detail the, 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 all the things of, uh, all the details of, of that sermon. And so we see these seven sermons. In chapter 3, he talks to Nicodemus, you must be born again. In chapter 4, there's the discourse about living water. Chapter 5, there's the relationship of the Son and the Father. Chapter 6, he says he's the bread of life, and he teaches about that. Chapter 7 and 8, he's the light of the world, and there's a long section of teaching in there. Chapter 10, he's the good shepherd. Again in chapter 10, he's one with the Father. There are seven distinct sermons or discourses of Jesus. And then what we notice too in, in John's gospel is there's this discernible pattern. It, it all starts, as I said, there'll be some miracle. There are seven signs, right? Jesus will do a miracle and people are astonished. Oh, he made the lame man walk or he gave this man sight. And then after that, Jesus will begin teaching and he'll say something about himself. He'll make some claim about his identity, who he is, and he'll spend time teaching about that. That leads to confusion. People are saying, what, what are you saying? What, what claim are you making about yourself? And that confusion for some that leads to belief for most or many it seems to lead to unbelief. And so there's even conflict and anger. And this really leaves the reader of the Gospel of John and us as we're going to be walking through it with a question mark. Who is Jesus? What is his identity? Do I believe what he's claimed about himself? Do I believe that he's the son of God? Do I believe he has the power to give eternal life? And, and so on. That's, that's the question. So, the, so it leaves us with that question. And that cycle, miracle, sermon, uh, discussion and, and interaction leading to conflict, and then Jesus withdraws himself. That cycle happens over and over again in this second section, this, this book of the signs. And when the conflict comes, Jesus then withdraws. And in this section of John, this second section, there's a repeated phrase that happens that is stated in, in this section of John. Uh, the writer says, the Apostle John says, that, that his hour had not yet come. So it leads up to that conflict, and then Jesus withdraws because it says his hour had not come. So we see this in chapter 7, verse 30, and chapter 8, verse 20. Let me just read that last one. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. All the way through John, my hour has not yet come. It's repeated several times. That is until the book of, the glor of glory, which is the third section where we come to a conclusion in chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus, that book of the signs, and then we enter into the book of glory. In this section, the conflict doesn't end with Jesus withdrawing, but instead with him being lifted up on the cross. In chapter 12, verse 23, there's this key statement there where Jesus answered them, and it says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. All the way up to chapter 12, my hour has not yet come. Chapter 12, now he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, what does it mean that the Son of Man is glorified? What is this hour that he's talking about? Well, it's clear. It's the cross. It's the cross and, and the resurrection. And, and the Gospel of John uses great irony. Isn't it ironic that, that he calls the moment of his death, his crucifixion, he calls that 
the moment when he'll be glorified. It, it, it is a, a great irony, and we actually see a lot of irony in the Gospel of John. In chapter 13, verse 31, it says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The, the hour of his glorification is the hour of the cross. And so we think, how, how was Jesus glorified by his death? Well, we could say three things. The, the son is glorified, first of all, through his obedience. And you could see that in John chapter 17, 4 through 5, that he is doing the work that the father gave him to do. And there's glory in the fact that he's obedient to that. And then there's also, it's, it's the moment of glorification because the Son is glorified by redeeming His people. You see, when He goes to the cross, he, He's not just ending in tragedy there. He, he's going there for a purpose. He's going there to redeem His bride, to redeem his, his people. He's the shepherd who's laying His life down for His sheep. And so there's glory in that. He's, he's bringing salvation to us. And it's also called the moment of glory because that's the pathway to the resurrection and the ascension. And we see that in John chapter 17 where Jesus prays, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world began. The cross and then the resurrection and the ascension into heaven is the pathway to, to Jesus being sort of restored to that place of glory. And then the final section is the epilogue, and, and he kind of ties everything together. It, it really focused, that last chapter focuses on the disciples and Jesus sort of restoring them and preparing to send them out. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is the one who's sent by the Father. But at the very end, and, and some places throughout, we see that the, the Son is now going to send out his disciples. You and I are, are sent out, and we're on this mission as well. And so the method of John is is structured but it's also symbolic let me just say there when i say that his method is symbolic that doesn't mean it is it isn't historical like it's a fairy tale what, what i simply mean by that is that john takes special care to note certain things that point to a greater reality and I also don't mean to say that Jesus, that John sat down and wrote and he said, let me try to, let me try to fix all the details so that, so that Jesus' life will match these realities from the past. He didn't contort the details. What we find actually is, is that God structured history. He structured all of the Old Testament in such a way that he would, when he revealed his son, we would see it so clearly. And that's what John is highlighting. He's highlighting all the ways. Look, look at Jesus and look how he fulfills all of these things. Symbolism, this symbolism that he uses really deepens the, the meaning of the gospel. John's gospel has a wonderful way of revealing truth at ever increasing depths. The amazing thing about the Gospel of John is if you're a first-time reader, there's so much there in the Gospel of John that is just sort of on the surface. I mean, John 3.16 is a, a clear example. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can read that. You can pick it up for the first time. You can see the beauty in that and, and you can appreciate it. And there is much in the Gospel of John like that. But there's, there's also... So much in the, in the Gospel of John. So, much, so many allusions, 
so much symbolism that's packed in there that you could read it a hundred times and you would still be learning and seeing new things about Jesus. And so we, we see this. One person, uh, Richard Bauckham, says, John is shot through with connections to the Old Testament that expand the meaning of any given story when they are, are observed and pondered. And so there, there's a meaning that's there and it's clear, but, but the more you reflect on it, the more detail and the more beauty that you see. And that's really my hope with this uh, series is, is I want to see the beauty that's on the surface and I don't want to become too complicated and, and get too deep. But at the same time, uh, I want to dig in and mine sort of the diamonds that are underneath the surface, so to speak. One ancient writer, nobody's sure exactly who said it first, uh, but, but someone at some point said that John's gospel is like a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant may swim. You see that? There, there's beauty. There's, there, there's so, so things that are so simple and easy. It's, it's like a, a pool that a child can wade in, but there's so much depth there that an elephant could swim in it. So there's symbolism and, and illusions. An illusion, I hope you know what that word means. I don't mean an illusion, like something that's tricky. I mean something that alludes to another thing. An illusion is something that's an in implied or an indirect reference. And, and symbolism, a symbol is something that stands for or suggests something else. As our rings, we, we wear rings, wedding rings, as symbols for our marriage vows and our, our covenant, right? That's a, a symbolic thing. And what I'm saying here is there are many allusions and many symbols in the Gospel of John. You, you don't have to go beyond the first verse to see an allusion to the Old Testament in the beginning. And anyone who's read their Bible, right? Anyone who's read their Bible one time knows that refers to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And right at the start, John says, in the beginning, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And, and again, that alludes to, it points us back to the informed reader, to someone who's reflecting on that, to the fact that, wait a minute, in the beginning God created, and how did God create in the beginning? Well, and God said, let there be light. Right? God spoke. And so now, this, this what He's talking about in the life of Jesus, He's saying there's a connection back, all the way back to the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. There's allusions like that throughout the book. There are symbolic things like the number seven that is all over the, the Gospel of John. I've already mentioned the, the whole second section, right, is structured around seven signs and seven sermons. We see other sevens in the Gospel of John. In chapter 1, there are seven titles of, of Jesus. In chapter 1, He's the Lamb of God, the Son of God, He's Rabbi, Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, King of Israel, and Son of Man. Seven titles for Jesus just in chapter 1. And then there are seven I Am, what I'll say are I Am plus statements. So we have I Am, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And what is significant about that is that little phrase, I am, is again, it's an allusion back to the Old Testament. You remember when the Lord met with Moses at the burning bush and Moses said, who should I say sent me? And he says, I am. Say that I am has sent you. And so now we have Jesus here 
repeatedly seven times, which is seven is the number of perfection, seven times saying, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. John, you see, he's included that number. I'm sure Jesus maybe said, I am more than that. But, but John selected seven times so that we could just see that stamp on there. He, he's, he's pointing to this meaning there. And Jesus is taking upon him, himself the name of God. Right? That's huge. That's significant. Jesus is taking upon himself the name of God, at least in terms of an allusion to that. He's saying, I am. What, a, what an amazing thing. Seven other times. He says, I am, without adding anything else to it. He just says, I am. So, and, and it's a sort of an emphatic way that is, again, it's an illusion if, if you're picking up on it. Chapter 4, verse 25, when he's talking to the woman at the well, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, and this is literally, literally, this is what Jesus says, I am the one who is speaking to you. The one speaking to you. So, so there's that emphatic, I am. Or again, you could see this in John chapter 8. There are seven times he does this, but, but uh, Jesus says, he's talking to the religious leaders, and, and he says, Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced in it. They're like, dude, you're not even 40 years old yet. And, and has Abraham saw your day? How can you say that? And Jesus says in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. Again, he's saying I pre-existed before. I, I have an existence that goes back before Abraham, but he's also alluding to the name of God. And he's saying, I'm God. I am. Each story, as we go through this section, each story that we see about Jesus is connected to some significant part of, of Jewish culture. And so there's really two collections of, of stories. The first four revolve all around Jewish religious traditions. So we have at the beginning Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana, right? And, and at the wedding of Cana, there's these jars of purification. And so that's the first one. We have a wedding, then we have a temple, and then we have a rabbi, and then we have a sacred well. Four things that were crucial and, and big parts of, of Jewish culture. And, and these stories all revolve around that. And then the second collection of stories, chapter 5 through 10, there are four Jewish feasts. Every, the whole narrative revolves around four Jewish holidays. The first is the Sabbath. And on that day, Jesus heals the lame man. And then there's the Passover and Jesus feeds the, the 5,000 and he claims that he's the bread of life. And then there's the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was the celebration of uh, the children of Israel in the Exodus and how God provided water and, and provided for their needs. He gave them uh, the fire at night and, and the cloud by the day. And, and in that section, Jesus claims to be uh, the, the, the water and, and, and the light. He, he says in chapter 8, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and, and let him drink. I'm the water, just like he said he was the bread earlier. And then there's the fourth, fourth one, which is the Feast of Dedication, or as it's called today, Hanukkah, right? And in that section, Jesus says that he's the one who is consecrated by the Father. There's a lot of structure there, and there's a lot of symbolism, 
And we've got to see that or we're going to miss. I mean, there's so much truth that we can glean from the Gospel of John, but, but there's so much that we'll miss if we don't see the structure and the symbolism. And then quickly, let me point you to the message of John because we're going to be coming back to these things. But, but there are two key things regarding the message of John. The first is sonship. And the second is salvation. And so the method of John is structured and symbolic. The message of John is sonship and it is salvation. In verse 31, we see this, don't we? He said, I, wrote, I write these things. I haven't written everything that I could write, but I selected some miracles so that you may believe. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You see, there's something specific that you are to believe. That's, that's one thing that we need to understand, and we'll see it as we come to the Gospel of John. So I'm not going to spend too much detail here or too much time here. But there, you know, sometimes we just talk very loosely about faith and believing in God and, and things like that. But, but what is required by the Gospel of John and really all of New Testament Christianity is not simply that you have some faith in God, but that you believe that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that's what he's saying. I've written these things so that you will believe this, so that you will see that he is the Christ, he's the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. That's the, the key thing there. And so it seems evident that John was written to reflect more deeply on the identity of Jesus Christ. So Clement of Alexandria, an ancient writer, said this, John perceiving that the external facts had been made plain in the gospel, being urged by his friends, inspired by the Spirit, composed a spiritual gospel. And so what he's saying here is, and, and there's question about which gospels were written first, and which, but, but according to him, the other gospels were well known. They had been written. They gave the details of Jesus' life. And so John was aware of those. He understood that those, those Gospels had been written. And he had been urged by his friends, and it says, inspired by the Spirit, he wrote down a spiritual Gospel. In other words, John knew the other Gospels had already been written, and he wasn't writing necessarily to recount the bare details of the life of Christ. Instead, John wanted to reflect at a deeper level or perhaps from a different angle about the mystery of the person of Christ. He'd had time to reflect on, what does this really mean? You know, in the moment when something happens, so, sometimes you've got to stop and pause and later, this means that he's the Son of God. And that's why John is writing. I, I want you all to believe. I want you to know that Jesus wasn't just a good person. He wasn't just a great teacher. I want you to know that he was God. He is the son of God. He is divine. A.W. Pink says this. It must be evident at once that this is quite different from the other three. That is the other three gospels. There Christ is seen in human relationships and as connected with an earthly people. But here he is viewed in a divine relationship and as connected with a heavenly people. The viewpoint of this fourth gospel is more elevated than the others. Its content brings into view spiritual relationships rather than human ties. And the higher glories are revealed as touching the peerless person of the Savior. The theme of John's gospel is the deity of 
the Savior. Listen again to what he says, because I think that's really key here. He says, in the synoptics, Christ is seen in human relationships and as connected with an earthly people. But here he is viewed in divine relationship. Now, that doesn't say that the other Gospels didn't point to the divinity of Christ, because we know there, there's a lot of evidence. There are clear uh, markers that say he's divine. But, but, but the primary focus of the Gospel of John is to demonstrate the divinity of Jesus Christ. And, and even more than the divinity of Jesus Christ, this unique relationship of the fact that he's the son to God the Father. And so that's, that's an important part of that. Yes, there are claims of the divinity of Christ. But I think to just say John's about the divinity of Christ is not enough. There, there are claims and things that he says. He claims eternal existence before Abraham was. I am. The word existed in the beginning. John says of him, John the Baptist says of him, uh, here, here is Jesus. He was before me. He existed before me, even though John was older uh, than, than Jesus. There are divine prerogatives. So Jesus claims to judge all men. He has the ability to give life. He says that he's the resurrection and the life. He says that he has the ability and he is going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to be with his people through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so there are many things that will point us to the fact that Jesus is claiming divinity. But John's gospel is more. It's more than just simply a claim that Jesus is divine. It is a claim that he is the son of God who has a unique relationship with the Father. The main theme is that Jesus, as the Son of God, has a personal, unique relationship with the Father. And this really, you see it all through the narratives. I, I talked about that conflict and that tension with the Jewish leaders and, and people. That conflict almost always comes because Jesus had made some claim about his relationship with the Father. And so in chapter 5, verse 18, it says this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so think about all the ways in, in which Jesus spoke of this relationship and in, in which John records it. We, we have the father has sent the son and the son came to do the will of the father. The Father has entrusted the Son with judgment and with giving life. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And if you know the Son, you know the Father. If God is your Father, then you'll love the Son. The Son honors the Father and the Father glorifies the Son. The Son is the only one who has ever seen the Father and the Son has come to make the Father known. No one can come to the Father but through the Son and no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. The Father shows the Son all that He does. And everything that the Son does has been revealed to Him by the Father. God the Father has set His seal on the Son. The Son is the true bread given by the Father. The Son comes in the Father's name. The Father bears witness to the Son. The Father has given a people to the Son. And the Father will ensure their safety and salvation. Whoever loves the Son will be loved by the Father. The Son doesn't do His own will, but He does the will of the Father. The Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. In John chapter 10, verse 30, there's one of those really important statements where Jesus says, I, the Son, I, and the Father are one. We are one. 
And in John chapter 14, you remember what Jesus says to Thomas? Thomas says, just show us the Father and it'll be good enough. You've done a lot of things, but just show us the Father. And what does Jesus respond to, to Thomas there? He says to Thomas, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And then at the very end of the Gospel, when Jesus is resurrected, Thomas kneeling before him, he said, I'm not going to believe until I see him. And he finally sees him. He says, my Lord and my God. You see, this is the theme of the Gospel of John. It's all about how Jesus, this person who lived in history, was the Son of God. He's divine. Yes, he's, he's divine, but more importantly, He is the Son of God with this unique relationship to the Father. Sonship is the message of the Gospel of John. Sonship and salvation. Notice again in verse number 31, but these are written. Other things happen, but I wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Is that the end of it? No, no, no. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. The, the theme of the Gospel of John is salvation. By believing, you may have life in His name and eternal life. This is a, a, an expression that's said over and over again in, in the Gospel of John. And it isn't, simply that by believing this message, that that works in and of itself to bring you salvation, right? It, this isn't, you know, there were some teachings that are referred to as Gnostic teachings in, in the New Testament time. And basically what that meant is if you have this secret knowledge, that was kind of like the pathway to salvation. But the message of Christianity isn't just simply, if you know that Jesus is the Son of God, then, then you have salvation, right? There, there's something more than that. What we find in the Gospel of John is, is that Jesus comes to do a work. He has a mission. Yes, He's the Son of God, but He has come to do a work that will bring salvation. He is sent by the Father for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 24 times Jesus refers to the Father as the one who sent the Son. And 17 times, the Gospel refers to Jesus as the one who is sent. The word where we get our word, apostle. So Jesus is an apostle. He's one sent from the Father. And He was sent with a purpose. And that purpose is abundantly clear in the Gospel of John. That purpose is to bring salvation by the laying down of His life. Jesus is uh, not only sent, but He is the substitute Right at the start of the Gospel, we get this idea where John the Baptist is there baptizing people at the river and he sees Jesus coming and what does he say? Look, there's the Lamb of God. There's an allusion to the Old Testament, the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb. There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus says, I've come to lay down my life for the sheep. And the, I told you, the whole gospel is, is built around this idea, my hour has not yet come. There's this hour that is looming over the entire ministry of Jesus. And that hour is the hour of His death. It's when He, the Son of Man, is lifted up. There's another expression that we find often in the Gospel of John. The Son of Man is lifted up on the cross for our sins. The imagery is clear as, as His death is taking place during the Passover. 
during this time in which these people are celebrating the fact that these lambs died so that they could be set free, that their, their firstborn would not have to die. And now Jesus is, is the Son of God, the only begotten of God, who is dying in the place of His people. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is sent and He's the substitute and this all calls for a response. And that response is belief. Believe in Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says that over a hundred times or around a hundred times that word believe is used. Never once in the entire gospel is the word faith used. Faith almost seems more passive. We know that it isn't, right? But faith is almost like something that I have or I don't have. But, but believing is this action. It's something that you're called to do. And that's what John is, is all about. He's calling us, look to Jesus. He's the Son of God. He has come as the substitute to die on the cross. Look to Him and believe. And that is what we're called to do. As we go through the Gospel of John, that's going to be the, the main imperative. That's going to be the, the main takeaway from many of our sermons is look to Jesus. Look who He is. Look at His claims. Look at what He has done. And believe in Him. And by believing in Him, you will have eternal life. You will be saved. As we conclude this morning, I hope that you can see and appreciate something of the beauty of the Gospel of John. It's a little bit of a different kind of sermon, and, and I get that. Uh, but, but as we dig in, I just wanted us to have this, this fuller picture and see some of the beauty of the Gospel of John. But more importantly, even this morning, I hope that you can see the beauty of Christ. I hope that you can see, even in what we've read and looked at, that Jesus is the divine Son of God who was sent into the world to lay down His life as the sacrificial Lamb for your sins and for my sins. And I hope you hear the invitation to believe in Him. That's the way of salvation. By believing in Him, by trusting in Him, you will have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning. We thank You for this beautiful, this wonderful Gospel that You've given to us. We thank You that You gave us four Gospels, that we get, we get different facets, we get different angles to, to look and to contemplate Your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You for Christ this morning, who was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Lord, we, we know that this was Your purpose and this was Your plan to redeem Your people. We thank You for Christ. I pray this morning, Lord, if there's one here who does not know You, I pray that they would, even by what we've heard this morning, that they would be led to look to Christ as the Son of God who laid down His life for them and that they would believe and that by believing they would have eternal life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.